tell you, I, I, it's Easter, and I was going to try to stay in my coat. I just don't <laughs> think that I can do it. And so if you'll just excuse me and let me go ahead and uh, take my liberty, because I'm already cutting a pretty good sweat. Thank you, my brother. I appreciate that. We have today a text is found in John chapter 20. One of my favorite passages, of course, of course, at the end of every one of the Gospels, you will find an account of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This one is very unique. John is not one of what's called the synoptic Gospels because John very carefully crafted a whole gospel around seven key signs. Everybody say seven signs. Seven signs. seven signs. Greek word samion. And it's a sign miracle. It's a miracle that was there showing us that there's something greater than. It is a sign pointing to something greater than actually than the act of the miracle itself. Uh, we're all going to go eat somewhere today, maybe at mom's or grandmom's or maybe uh, at the Peabody or wherever you might have reservations that you may be going to, or maybe just down here to Cracker Barrel. You see the big sign on the interstate out here that points you, it tells you where Cracker Barrel's located. That's just the sign. That's not where you get the blessing. That's, it's pointing to something greater than itself. You don't go out there and stand under the sign and wait for somebody to seat you. The sign tells you that it's across the interstate on the other side over there. And these sign miracles that are in the Gospel of John are powerful occurrences but they're actually there to show us something greater than the actual event that's taking place. And there, there are seven of them. In John 2, it's when Jesus turned the water into wine. That's the first one. The, the second one is in John chapter 4 when Jesus met the woman at the well and he told her everything that she'd ever done and where she'd come from and how many husbands she'd had. And she went away changed by, and transformed by the power and the presence of the, the one who was standing in her presence in her midst and she went and declared, come see a man who tells me all that I've ever done. He's a prophet of God. She was an evangelist. She was carrying the message, carrying the good news. The third sign miracle takes place in John chapter 5 with the man at the pool of Bethesda. It's 38 years, an angel waiting on an angel to come and stir the water. The fourth of the seven sign miracles takes place in John chapter 6 when Jesus fed the 5,000. The fifth sign miracle takes place in John 9 where Jesus healed the man who was born blind. The sixth Samion sign miracle takes place in John 11, where Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Then the seventh one is tied up in the one continuous occurrence of the crucifixion, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the seventh miracle. It is there for the purpose of showing us that when Jesus comes into our lives, he he turns our water into wine, and then he reads everything there is about us and changes us so our story changes and what comes out of our mouth changes. And, and he doesn't stop there, but he, he heals all of our infirmities and he stirs the water in our lives so that healing can come to us. And, and then he takes our little and he multiplies it and breaks it and becomes much. We move through all of those sign miracles and see that it's actually a progression of what God does in the life of a believer. And we move up to... The sixth one, the seventh one, where Jesus is crucified and he's resurrected. And we're going to read today in John chapter 20. The title of this message, by the way, is called The Beginning of the New Creation. The Beginning of the New Creation. You should have received a copy of message notes uh, when you came in. I think maybe they were on your seat or you got them when you came in. 
And uh, this text that we're going to begin with is a little bit lengthy, but it's worthy of our time to read this and read from God's Word. One of the two screens here in the front, I'm going to read off the one in the back, John chapter 20, verses 1 through 23. Early in the morning on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone was moved away from the entrance. She ran at once to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, breathlessly panting. They took the master from the tomb. We don't know where they've put him. Peter and the other disciple left immediately for the tomb. They ran neck and neck. The other disciple got to the tomb first. Now, this is John himself. He's, he's calling himself the other disciple. The other disciple got to the tomb first, outrunning Peter. Stooping to look in, he saw the pieces of linen cloth lying there, but he didn't go in. Simon Peter arrived after him, entered the tomb, observed the linen cloths lying there, and the kerchief used to cover his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but separate, and that's important, but separate, neatly folded by itself. Then the other disciple, the one who had gotten there first, went into the tomb, took one look at the evidence, and believed. Everybody say, and believed. No one yet knew from the scripture that he had to rise from the dead. The disciples then went back home. But Mary stood outside the tomb weeping. As she wept, she knelt to look into the tomb and saw two angels sitting there dressed in white, one at the head, the other at the foot, the foot of where Jesus' body had been laid. They said to her, woman, why do you weep? They took my master, she said, and I don't know where they put him. After she said this, she turned away and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't recognize him. Everybody say that line with me. But she didn't recognize him. Jesus spoke to her, woman, why do you weep? Who are you looking for? She, thinking that he was the what? That's important too. Thinking that he was the gardener, said, Mr. If you took him, tell me where you put him so I can care for him. Jesus said, Mary. That's all it took right there. Turning to face him, she said in Hebrew, Rabboni, meaning teacher. Jesus said, don't cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go to my brothers and tell them that I ascend to my Father, to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went telling the news to the disciples. I saw the Master, and she told them everything he said to her. To believe. Later on that day, the disciples had gathered together, but fearful of the Jews, had locked all the doors in the house. Jesus entered, stood among them, and said, Peace be to you. Bow your heads with me, please, for a word of prayer. That's, we didn't, weren't supposed to go that far. It's fine. Father, we just thank you today for your word. Thank you for your blessing upon this service. I pray in the name of Jesus, Lord, that you open the hearts of every person here that we would hear with spiritual ears, Lord, that we would hear and understand and perceive the word of the Lord. God, I ask you today that by the power and the presence of your Holy Spirit, you are the only teacher. I acknowledge before you and this people that I can't do anything apart from you, but Lord, with you I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I ask you today, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. And I pray this in the strong name of Jesus and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. The one thing that I want to bring to you today for the next few moments is to tell you that the resurrection of Jesus Christ changes 
everything. That's the one thing. That's, that's the one point message that I'm bringing to you this morning. The resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything. Say that with me. The resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything. Turn and tell somebody on one side of you. Tell them right now. Say, the resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything. Now tell the person on the other side. The resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything. I was reading a book the last couple of months. Um, and it took me a while to wade through it. It was, it was uh, matter of fact, I have a couple of these that I've been working through. There's, there's a whole host of new, very bright, extremely articulate writers that are launching a fresh attack on religion. Atheistic writers. Christopher Hitchens is one, extremely brilliant man. Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins. The one that I had just finished a couple of months ago has a yellow front copy, and it's called God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. I'm going to tell you, the man made a real case in there, several, and some of them were just the perennial same old, same old arguments. Um, I, I think that if you're a grounded Christian in the Word, that you can read this kind of thing for the purpose of being able to give an answer and give a defense of the faith. If, if you're a babe in Christ, I would encourage you not to, to go there uh, because there are some tremendous things that are challenging uh, in the book. I'm not here to talk about the book this morning, but I am here to tell you about one quote that I thought was so absolutely amazing. Just recently, he, he wrote the book two years ago. It's been on the New York bestseller list. Um, it's won a couple of awards. It's a, it's, a, it's a good read just in terms of the way the book is written. Uh, the guy is an avowed atheist. He was raised in a Christian home. <laughs> Interestingly enough, his younger brother, Peter Hitchens, is just releasing his new book this month by Zondervan Publishers called How I Found God in Spite of My Brother. <laughs> I mean, is that classic or what? <laughs> you got to love God's sense of humor. He steps in and touches sovereignly. <laughs> oh, my, my. Christopher Hitchens was being interviewed by a Unitarian, a female Unitarian minister in Portland, Oregon. And uh, you can actually Google this on the internet, and you can hear an MP3, download it. You can listen to it right there on your media player on your computer if you'd like. It's about 36 minutes of an interview that is conducted, and I listened to it. This is not something that, that Snopes.com would say this is not true. I heard Christopher Hitchens say this myself, listened to it, read the interview, read the transcript. She asked him the question. She said, Mr. Hitchens, you know, I really feel like that you probably wrote this book because of and in correction of all of the fundamentalists in all of the religions, particularly especially that of the fundamentalist sect of Christianity. She said, I just want you to know that I don't believe that the stories of the Bible are literal. I don't believe that the miracles actually took place. I don't believe in the atonement that Jesus died for our sins, and I certainly don't believe in a literal res resurrection. I just believe in the metaphor. I believe it's just the rebirth of hope. I believe it's just the, 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 the challenge that is in the narrative, in the meta-narrative, in the great big story, and how that it can give us hope and help us to bring some dreams alive. I don't believe that Jesus got up out of the grave. And this is what Christopher Hitchens said to her. <laughs> I love it. A vowed atheist said this. He said, I would say that if you don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ and the Messiah, and it's in your notes, he says, and that he rose again from the dead, and by his sacrifice our sins are forgiven, then you're really not in any meaningful sense of the word a Christian. 
<laughs> Do you, does anybody see the sweet irony of this? When the leading atheist writer of the day has a better handle on what the real gospel of Christianity is about than some supposed believers who are supposed to be ministers of that said gospel. Come on, somebody, put your hands together and let's give God praise. <laughs> you know, in the Old Testament, I remember the story where God spoke through a donkey. And if he can speak through a donkey, he can speak through the mouth of an atheist. <laughs> Now, this same Christopher Hitchens doesn't believe in the things he just said, but he said, you know something? If you don't believe that, you're not really a Christian. Real Christ if you're really a Christian, you know that he died for your sins, and you believe with all of your heart that he got up out of the ground. I'm going to amplify this one point three times. What was my main thing? Tell me. What was it? The resurrection. What? Changes everything. This is the first one. Number one, the resurrection marks the beginning of the new creation. The resurrection marks the beginning of the new creation. John arranged those seven miracles in such a way so that the last one would culminate in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and he would be in the tomb on the seventh day, which ended literally a week of the old creation. It was an old creation week. And what that demonstrated when Jesus, and they're very careful when you read this passage, and I'm not going to go back and take the time to show it to you, but in verse 1 and verse 19, John was very careful to say early on the what? First day of the week. Everybody say the first day of the week. Early on the first day of the week is when they recorded that Jesus was resurrected, that we celebrate that he conquered sin and sickness and death and hell and the grave and he got up out of the grave and he was seen not just by the two or three initially but by the twelve and, and by a multitude and by five hundred. It's amazing to me people who labor so hard to try to discredit or discount the validity of the New Testament when scholars will quickly believe that one copy in existence of a Greek manuscript written by a poet or by a philosopher where may there only be one copy under glass somewhere in a museum around the world, and they believe that that guy who claimed to have written it wrote it. But we have thousands of copies of the extant manuscript of the Word of God from all of the books collected together of the New Testament that date back to that time. And it is amazing to me how in the face of those thousands and in the face of that one, they'll accept that Greek philosopher, that Greek poet, where we only have one copy of his stuff. We have thousands of copies, historical evidence, men who hazarded their lives, the King James says in the book of Acts, men who literally gave their lives because they dared to preach that Jesus Christ was Lord in a Roman empire when Caesar was Lord. He was Emmanuel in the Roman panoply of the gods. He was God manifested in the flesh. Caesar was God. Caesar was Lord. It was a declaration. It was a political statement. It was saying Caesar is Lord. And so when the new Christians came on the scene preaching that Jesus was alive and saying Jesus Christ is Lord, it was a politically defiant statement. They laid their lives on the line. They were martyred in early Christianity. And the Colosseum, the gladiators made sport of them. Apostles 
lost their heads, who were crucified upside down. History gives us the story over and over and over again. These guys weren't just preaching about a meta-narrative or a nice story or a metaphor or a mythological. Jesus is not a departed hero. He is not an existentialist hero like Sisyphus who's trying to push the rock back up the hill and it comes back down on him and perpetually and through eternity, he's that existentialist hero, Sisyphus, pull it, pushing that rock and it's back on him. No, Jesus didn't have to push that rock but one time. And he got out of the ground and he conquered death, hell, and the grave. Come on, somebody. Our commitment to Christ is based and rooted solidly in history. That's the reason I love history. Because when you can put on a set of glasses that, that you, you get when you're born again, that gives you a perspective, a worldview, then you can begin to see that the God who made this thing, the God who by his divine fiat, who spoke this thing into existence, and who said, death you will not hold my son, and called him out of the ground, that same God is the God who will breathe his very spirit into your life this morning. He will move mountains. He will part oceans. He will heal fevered brows. He will rebuke the onslaught of cancer. Jesus is bigger than and stronger than and more powerful than anything that the enemy can hurl at him or at you or at us. I believe that with all of my heart. Come on, praise him. The resurrection marks the beginning of the new creation. I do not think that it was a coincidence that when Mary saw Jesus, that she thought he was the gardener. Do you guys remember where this whole thing started? Genesis started in a garden. And the first Adam messed this whole thing up. And Jesus arises conquering death out of the tomb. And the first one who sees him perceives and thinks and confuses in her mind, misconstrues, but sees him, rather than seeing him as the Christ, the resurrected living God, she sees him as a what? I want you to see that the one who's standing before her, it was by his spoken word that everything in existence was made. But now because the resurrection has come and it's the beginning of the new creation, you've got a gardener there who's standing in the middle of the garden who's going to tend and deal with every thorn and every thistle and every serpent that tries to sneak in because the gardener of the new creation is a perfect man and he's the last Adam who came to make a lasting end to the first Adam. Come on, somebody. What happened on Easter 2,000 years ago is the beginning of the new creation. You know the principle. You know the, the Bible passage that says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed. The new has come. Because of the resurrection, it is by his life that we are saved. So many places we so overemphasize the cross and say very, very little about the resurrection. Millions, I want to say millions, I don't want to give an improper, incorrect, evangelistic statistic this morning, but multiplied thousands of people certainly were crucified in Jesus' day by the Roman Empire. Now, Jesus' crucifixion certainly was very different. It was unique from all the others because they all deserved to die. He did not. 
It was the just suffering for the unjust. It was the righteous taking upon himself. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. So yes, his crucifixion is unique, but in so many places, we just stop right there. We present the gospel regularly and talk about how he lived a perfect, sinless life, and he died for us, and he loved us this much, and he stretched out his hands and died. But I want to tell you what validated the fact. Romans chapter 1 says he was called to be the Son of God, signified, validated, authenticated by his resurrection from the dead. It's not just because he died for you. It's because he got up out of the ground. God received that offering that Jesus took for you. But then Jesus got back up out of the ground, conquering everything that had to do with sickness, sin, and death. Can I have an amen this morning? It's the beginning of the new creation. We have a new gardener. You know what? The new heavens and the new earth are not so far in the distance. As a matter of fact, Jesus started the progression of getting everything ready. While the old creation is still in being, he started the process of the new creation. The need everything by his word, it is now by his word that everything will be remade. Everybody say remade. Because he's making all things new. Look at the scripture with me. The resurrection marks the beginning of the new creation found in Revelation chapter 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits before the throne and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness. The firstborn from what? The firstborn from the dead. He is the beginning of the new creation of God. He is the firstborn from among the dead. How many of you know if there is a firstborn, it, it, it demands, there's, a, there's an obvious implication here that if there's a firstborn, if, if there wasn't going to be a succession of others that would come behind, he would just say the one born from the dead. But he said the firstborn of the dead. How many of you know if there's a firstborn, there's going to be a secondborn? And on the day of Pentecost, there was 120 born. And Peter went out there preaching, possessed by God. And there were 3,000 more that were born into the kingdom of God, born from the dead. God brought them out of death, spiritual death, and he raised them up in newness of life. Yeah. Hallelujah. Take your pen and circle that phrase in your notes. The firstborn from the dead. And he's the ruler of the kings of the earth to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Everybody say past tense. And has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Verse 18. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and of Hades. Hebrews chapter 2 says you don't have to be afraid of death any longer because Jesus has got the key. And saints, I want to tell you something. I, I don't know that it'll be in our lifetime. I'm not sure. I do with all of my heart believe that Jesus is coming back. I believe he's coming back for a, a bride that is going to be ready for him, that is going to be spotless, that is going to have the same kind of glory moving and working in our lives, in her life as the bride of Christ that is also working and moving in his because the same spirit that raised him from the dead dwells on the inside of you. Come on, somebody. I am alive forevermore, he says, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Revelation 21.5, he who was seated on the throne said, say it with me, I am making everything 
new. Another translation, I believe the King James says, I make all things new. Now think about this. He didn't say, you know, I'm, I'm tired of this whole thing. I, I, I'm just sick. I had it up to here. I'm not that tall yet. I, I'm just tired of the way everybody's doing all of this rampant sin that is all over the place. I'm just going to blow it all up, and I'm going to just make all new things. Is that what he said? He didn't say he was going to make all new things. He says, I am making all things what? There's a totally different perspective there. It's totally different to destroy what you start with and to make something entirely different, brand new. But it's something that God says, I'm willing to take the mess in this guy's life. I'm willing to, to, to pluck him out of spiritual death where he has the possibility of no choice at all except that which breeds death. I, I'm going to call him out of that and I'm going to blow my spirit into him and I am going to resurrect him and I'm going to set him on a path and I'm going to make him to be a man of destiny. I'm going to make you to be a woman of destiny. Listen to me in this room this morning. Do not let the accuser put you in any kind of place of shame or guilt. You take it before the Lord and confess. The Bible says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In case there's a Pharisee in the house this morning, if you think you don't have any sin, you're crazy. The Bible says you're a liar and the truth's not in you. Ain't nobody in the room who doesn't have some sin. I'll be the first to stand up here and tell you this morning, God is still working on me. Nobody in the room is perfect. This is a perfect place, a perfect church for imperfect people because everybody in the house is still imperfect and God is still working on us. Come on, somebody. That's right. Give him praise. Being confident of this very thing that he who has begun a good work in you will finish it. He will perform it. God doesn't start a project and leave it laying around his cosmic garage 25 years, 30 years, 2,000 years, 100,000 years. He starts a work on the inside of you and he is going to finish what he started. Come on, somebody. Give him praise. Hallelujah. He is making everything new. Number two, the resurrection changes everything. It becomes the most magnificent historical occurrence in all of history. Jesus himself became the hinge point, recalibrating history, how it's counted. God spoke to Moses in the Old Covenant, and when he brought them out of Egypt, and he started them on their trek in the school of the wilderness... He said from that moment while they were still in Egypt and they applied the blood of the lambs that were slain to the doorposts of the houses so that that night the death angel passed over them. He said this day when you do this, this is a beginning of months. It's a new season. It's a new time. The new creation is the recognition of God doing something new. You begin to count time differently. Time then becomes in life. B.C., before Christ. And you know, guess what? If it's before Christ, Paul said, it's just nothing. I count it all as dung. But now I pursue with everything that is in me, Christ, I have come to apprehend all that he grabbed hold of and apprehended me for. I've not yet reached it, but I am pressing toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Number two, Jesus Christ is the prototype. Everybody say the prototype. Prototype is the first one that rolls off the assembly line. Prototype is, is, 
is one of those vehicles at the National Car Show. It's, it's something that is out way ahead of everything else. It's, it's cutting edge. It's, it has new technology. It, uh, it runs, it's aerodynamically styled. It, it runs on new fuel, something else that nobody else has any uh, awareness of or any accessibility to. A prototype that man makes is something that we all ooh and ah over and go, oh, when is this going to be? so that it's available to all of us. And they say, well, in about 20 years, we'll have that technology perfected. This car costs $2 million to design. We want to get it down there where everybody can afford it. You know, Jesus Christ was that prototype. And it's not years and years and years and years in the making for us to be able to walk in that kind of life, but he paid the price. It wasn't just a million or two or $3 million or a billion or a trillion or a quadrillion, but it was the infinitely precious blood of Christ that he spilled on the cross of Calvary. He paid that price to design this whole new creation man of which he was the first. He was the prototype. He was the first one. He was the, what did we say? Firstborn. Everybody say firstborn. Look at this. I'm reading from Colossians. I love this passage from the NIV. The Bible says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you. King James says, who's made us meet to be partakers. It says, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us. What tense is that? Somebody tell me. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. Wait a minute. I thought I didn't get to the kingdom until I died. Well, that's stupid theology. And you're in the kingdom right now. The kingdom of God is in you. You're walking in the reality of the present reality of the kingdom of God right now. It is here. Jesus' first message out of the chute preaching was repent. The kingdom of God is within your reach. It's within your grasp. One translation says it's at hand. It's available. Reach for it in faith. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. He's rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God. Here it comes. Say it with me. The firstborn over all creation. Say it again. The firstborn over all creation. Uh, that was all supposed to be bold and bold. I wanted you to be able to see that because I have it in bold in my notes and it wasn't on yours and it was supposed to be in bold up there. But I want you to underline that, put a circle around it because here it comes again. The firstborn over all creation. Say that. Everybody say firstborn. Verse 16, for by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. Everybody say, everybody say it's not about me at all. He's the center of all this. Verse 17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. Now, here's another phrase. I want this to be bold. Underline this in your notes. He is the beginning and the what? Firstborn from among the dead. There it is again, the firstborn. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Everybody say, Jesus is the firstborn. Jesus. Romans 8, 28. We all 
know this passage. It says, and we, we all know that God works all things to what? Together for our good. Help me. For those who are the called according to his purpose. It says, for him and for those who are the called according to his purpose. And it goes on to say, for those he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. Don't be afraid of that word. Predestination, Greek word pro-horizo. We get our English word horizon. Pro-horizo, it means he sees a destination that he's marked you for in your life. God's not getting in the car, taking you on a vacation, just on a drive, not knowing where he's going. Look at your neighbor and say, he marked your destiny. For those he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. This is all over the scripture. Everybody say, firstborn. Jesus is the prototype of the new creation man. There's a firstborn. There's a second born and a third born and 120 born and 3,000 more born. And a couple days later, Peter preaches again and 5,000 more born. And there's been 2,000 years, literally right now, where more than 2 billion people on the planet are confessing that Jesus Christ is the Savior and the Lord of their lives, Bible-believing, almost a third of the population of the planet, which, by the way, now has more people alive than there ever have been in all of history combined. Don't tell me God doesn't have something up his sleeve. <laughs> Don't tell me God doesn't have revival that's going to shake the planet and it's going to shake up the world systems. It's going to shake up governments. Come on, he's going he's to take down some leaders and he's going to raise up some godly leaders. I'm going to tell you, I don't believe this thing's going to hell in a handbasket. It may get dark all around us, but I'm telling you by the prophetic word of the Lord, arise and shine. For your light is come and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. For darkness shall cover the earth, the Bible says in Isaiah 60. Gross darkness to people. But the Bible says, my light shall be seen rising upon you and they shall be drawn to that light. The Bible declares that in the day of darkness that the church is going to shine brighter and brighter, brighter and brighter. Proverbs 4.18, the path of justice is the shining light that shines more and more and more into the perfect day. That's the reason I don't listen to all these idiots on TV that telling you it's getting darker and darker. That is not the Bible. The path of the justice is the shining light. The world may get darker, but I'm telling you, baby, I'm going to tell you right now, because the light of God is on the inside of me, every step I take, it's getting brighter, and it's getting better, and it's getting more powerful, and it's getting more wonderful. I'm walking in His promises. I'm standing upon His Word. My faith is growing. I'm stepping out and declaring the Word of God, and He's, he's bringing increase. It's overwhelming me, exceeding abundantly above all that I can even begin to ask or imagine. It's, he's opening the windows of heaven and pouring out blessing that I don't even have room to contain. Anybody believe just a little bit of that this morning? I believe that with all of my heart. He's the prototype. Number three, and I'm finished. The resurrection means a new day with a new commission. Everybody say a new day with a new commission. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. That's not going to be some glad morning when this life is o'er. That's right now. 
Now, you know what? I'm not doing away with that. The Bible says in, in, in Psalm 90, when we die, we fly away because that song actually is written correctly. Some glad morning, when this life is over, I'll fly away. I'll fly into his presence to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. I'm going to tell you, when he calls, I'm ready to go, but I'm not in a hurry because I'm getting pretty excited about what he's got me to do in my life right now and the destiny that I have on this planet. The old is gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Everybody say, a new day with a new commission. The resurrection really does change everything. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Not by my works, not by my own righteousness. I stand with you this morning and I tell you that my righteousness in and of itself is as filthy rags. But I'm not standing before him in my righteousness. I've been clothed upon with somebody else who died for me to give me his garment. The song we sing around here, we hadn't done it in a long time, says, I am covered over with the robe of righteousness that Jesus gives to me. I am covered over with the precious blood of Jesus and he lives in me. What a joy it is to know my heavenly father loves me so. He gives to me Christ Jesus. Now listen, this last line will blow your mind. And when he looks at me, he sees not what I used to be, but he sees Jesus. Indulge me, I'm going to do it one time. covered over with the robe of righteousness that Jesus gives to me I am covered over with the precious blood of Jesus and he lives in me what a joy it is to know my heavenly Father loves me so He gives to me Christ Jesus Listen When He looks at me He sees not what I used to be But He sees Jesus Reach out in faith and sing that with me now When He looks at me he sees not what I used to be, but He sees Jesus. What's beginning to dawn on some of you this morning? Lift it up again now. And when He looks at me, He sees not what I used to be, but He sees Is that your testimony this morning? Yeah.
you know what? If it's not, it can be. Very, very simple. No rocket science involved. You just actually take a step and you say, I really honestly believe what these people are celebrating today. I believe Jesus Christ came and was crucified bearing all of my sin. Everything I would ever commit in the past and in the present and everything I ever will commit in the future that is an infringement upon the holy commandment of God, His law, His righteous requirement. None of us can stand before Him in our own righteousness because we've all blown it, everybody. All have sinned and fallen short of God's glorious standard. But you know what? God didn't stop there. The Bible says, while we were still in sin, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The godly for the ungodly. Jesus for me. Say that right now. Say, Jesus for me. It's just that simple. The Bible says in Romans 6.23, the, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. My wife picked these glasses out for me, and uh, they're a little edgy, kind of maybe some of you might think they're a little bit weird looking. I get a, everywhere I go, every day of my life, people will say, man, those are really cool glasses. And I go, my wife picked them out. She bought them for me, they were a gift. I, I took that and received that. If I offer to give you something, and then you try to hand me a buck or two, something that is pretty expensive, that's like an insult. If we try to receive Jesus' gift that he's given to us, that he's already paid the ultimate price, he is the absolutely inestimable valued prototype rolled off the assembly line of God out of heaven. He's the first one. Wasn't just a couple of million or a billion. It was the precious blood of Jesus Christ, absolutely unable to value. And he poured it out. He spilled it. He he poured it on the earth, not just for you and me, but for the sins of the whole world. The Bible says the gift of God's eternal life. All you have to do is reach out and take that gift and just say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for the gift. Romans 10, the Bible says if we can our mouth that Jesus is Lord and that God has raised him from the dead, we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, the Bible says we will be saved. For with the heart man believes, inside here in your spirit, you believe God starts that work by your believing, by releasing your faith, by just saying, God, I put my trust in you. But then it says it becomes a reality when you confess it out of your mouth. It says with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. We have to say it. That's that's the reason Jesus said when you pray, say, our Father who art in heaven. And so today I'm going to ask you to just do what the Word says. I'm going to ask everybody to bow your head and to close your eyes. And I'm going to ask you right now, Can you say the words of that song that I sang? When he looks at me, he sees not what I used to be, but he sees Jesus. You know what? If you don't have that confidence, if if, if you don't know that when you stand before the, the bar of heaven and God the Father, God the Judge is seated there on the the heavenly throne, the judgment seat, and he asks you, Whose name do you appear before me in today? If you appear before him in your own, then I feel sorry for you. But if you come 
clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ, covered by the precious blood of Christ, standing in the authority that is in the name of Jesus Christ. Then he says, come in, you're my son, you're my child. And we're finishing this service this morning. Music's been good, the worship's been powerful. I hope you got something out of the word, but this is the most critically important moment in this service today. Your life is in the balance. Pontius Pilate said, I find no fault in this man. He washed his hands of him. This morning I would ask you, what do you see in this Jesus? Who is he to you? What does he mean to you? Is he just a good teacher? Is he a really nice world changer, influencer? Or is he your Savior and Lord? That's affected by what you're about to say out of your mouth right now. If you mean it in your heart, I want you to pray this with me. I want everybody to pray this. Father, thank you for this word today. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who died for me. He took my sins. He took my place. I deserve to die. I am a sinner. I need a Savior. Jesus, be my Savior. I repent. I turn from my sins. I turn to you, Jesus. Change my life. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. I will walk with you. I will be yours. In Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, every head still bowed, every eye